0: It's Brother David, my dear brothers and sisters, we have before us a beautiful contrast of those things we were considering in the last session about a terrible and great beast power that was strong exceedingly and crushed others and bruised them. Here in this delightful section we have the absolute contrast and it's a very encouraging section indeed for ourselves. The principles upon which this alternative force are going to be developed are so entirely different. Whereas in his case, in the case of the fourth beast, it was a matter of brutal subjugation by the power of the flesh. On this occasion, my dear brothers and sisters, we see the founding of the ecclesia of God on different principles. There's going to be first a binding of the strong man within. The lust of flesh, the lust of eyes and pride of life are going to be bound. And then he's going to go forth and develop his house throughout the world. And he will take over kingdoms. In fact, he will rise up against that very, very beast that we have been describing. When Christ shall overcome Antichrist. And he shall bind that strong man and uh, eclipse it forever. But we are promised a part in that wonderful time. So this is a most interesting section. What do we see in the closing words, in those uh, opening words of chapter 3 that were the closing section of yesterday? The Son of God has been refused, hasn't he, in the synagogue. It's as though as we watch the passages of of his his feet as he went from place to place, it's as though he'd made another attempt to go to the synagogue in that chapter 3 verse 1. He had not been in there since chapter 1. He had been around all the countryside, in the wilderness, in the desert places, in the house. He had made an attempt to go back, but instead of there being some acceptance of him, they had set about that they might destroy him. They joined even with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So there we have a Jew and Edomite gathered together that they might jointly Destroy the Son of God. In verse 7, we have a kind of exodus. As he takes out his people, a large and liberated people, they are a mixture of Jew and Gentile. A people whom he had healed. Healed in every sense, I suggest, my dear brothers and sisters. They are his people. They are now, as it were, being drawn aside from an institution that will not hearken to him and that seeks to destroy him. And as I said, they are of Jew and Gentile. And they proclaimed that he was the Son of God, that acknowledged his title to, to authority. And he takes them, we read, in verse thirteen, up into a mountain, and calls up there twelve, with tremendous implications. They're going to be, as we know, The foundations, you remember what Revelation chapter 21 says concerning the the 12, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What wall of what city, my dear brothers and sisters? The city that would take over from the great and terrible city of the nations as Isaiah describes it in that 25th chapter the great and terrible city of the nations. This city, of whom God is the bulwark and the wall of salvation, this city will take over from that and the twelve foundations of it are the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In this very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting chapter, those foundations are laid and so the groundwork, for the establishing of a new house, are indicated to us. In the following words, after the appointment of the twelve, in verses 13 to 18, it goes on then to describe the true house of Christ. The matter arose partly because of his own relatives, in verse 21, and then because of this wicked argument of the scribes that came down from Jerusalem, in verses 22 to 29. From that he lays down. On top as it were. Of the foundations already chosen. In verses 13 to 18. Those who are truly his family. So it's the establishment. Of a house. The establishment. Of a true house of God. In verse 7. It opens with Jesus. Withdrawing himself with his disciples to the sea. It's a pattern that we will see rather consistently. We've already seen something of it in chapter 1 and verse 45. In chapter 7, we have another very similar example. Chapter 7 and verse 24, From thence he arose, and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into an house. And would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. That was after the occasion when, we read in chapter 7, verse 1, Pharisees had come down with scribes from Jerusalem. And again, they, excuse me, had sought to destroy his argument. And because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus turns from the Pharisees and scribes that came from Jerusalem and he went right up into Jezebel's own backyard to Tyre and Sidon. And there found a woman that had the type of faith that he was looking for. This was a very consistent attitude of the Lord. You have another very good example in Matthew 16, where Israel, full of conjecture about him, he again turns from them and goes right up north unto Caesarea Philippi, a city that was named after both Caesar and Philip Herod, and up there he was with his disciples. You've got the same picture in John chapter 11, in uh, the case of the healing of lazarus and the uh, ramifications of that where again he departs from them so he withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea but there was to be no relief we might have thought that those words indicate a desire for some form of relief but it was not to be so because we read there of an unprecedented following i want you to notice carefully the depth and breadth of that following They came from Galilee, verse 7, and from Judea. This large, spontaneous following that came from Galilee and Judea must have been particularly vexatious to the Pharisees. And it may be because they saw so many leaving from Judea and Jerusalem to go and hear and hearken unto this man that perhaps in verse 22 we have that response of the scribes which came down from Jerusalem to a try and attribute his wonder-working to some other source. Hence their outrageous argument. They were vexed sore because now even many of their own kind were leaving their study classes, so to speak, and they were going to hear the great new teacher in Galilee. The phrase, a great multitude, makes us think, doesn't it, of the same expression as found in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 and 9, speaking of the redeemed, says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, as stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, there were overtones already of great things to come, a great multitude following him from all parts of the compass. For such a wide territory to hear and come means that for some weeks all of Palestine were hearing and speaking and communicating to each other about the tremendous effects that this man was having. So the synagogue might line him up. And they may in, their, in, the, in, the, in the smallness of their minds take that man with a withered hand and set a trap for him. But abroad, my dear brothers and sisters, abroad there was a movement developing which nothing could stop. And look at the terms of verse 8. And from Jerusalem and from Idumea what an incredible statement. And from beyond Jordan And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. A great multitude being repeated. It really is an astounding description. And the repetition of the phrase great multitude, the one being preeminently stated in verse 7 about Jewish people, And the other in verse 8 about Gentile peoples really makes us think, doesn't it, of that statement again in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. In which from all points of the compass, Jew and Gentile, the true Israel of God, the true 12 tribes, the true 144,000, no matter what their uh, origins, were finding their way to him. Gentiles were coming. To the light of his rising. There are some very beautiful echoes of verse 8, if we contemplate some of the thoughts in that. Turn particularly <coughs> with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Some particularly beautiful overtones here. chapter 42 a section that we've looked at before behold my servant whom I uphold mine elect in whom my soul delighteth I have put my spirit upon him he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles now don't read that carelessly read it like a Jew would have read it when Isaiah first said it and what would that do to him it would kick his eye you think goodness what did I just read judgment to the Gentiles why no never he shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. You see, if he was to bring judgment unto the Gentiles, then indeed they would think that that meant that the heavy hand was going to be placed upon the Gentiles, and indeed it will, as it says in verse 13. But that verse 2 should follow verse 1, means that the same gentle disposition of preaching and of appeal It should be seen not only by the Jews, but too by the Gentiles. He would not only roar against his enemies in verse 13 from Jerusalem, but also that endearing disposition that endeavoured to redeem and to lift up and to uh, bring into light and hope that also was going to be felt by none other than the Gentiles. Bruised reed shall he not break. Glorious words. That spirit of redemption, as I commented last night, wasn't it? Let us never forget that. A bruised reed, a difficult, almost useless case, a bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. Yet he shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Isn't that a lovely balance? All that's a glorious balance. It is not going to be a rapacious member of the of the cruel and terrible, tyrannical fourth beast, is it? It's going to be one who has walked gently upon the earth, has not lifted up his voice like the great general Alexander, or like the great generals of the Roman armies with all their ferocity. It will be one who by the foolishness of preaching, by the sympathy, by being filled with compassion, by speaking and preaching to men and bringing them out of the morass of of their human problems, it will be by that that he eventually be able to speak truth unto the Gentiles. He will bring forth judgment unto truth. And he shall not fail. You think he's weak? Ha ha. Look at verse 4, says the Spirit. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. And the isles shall wait for his law. There's a glorious balance there. As the Spirit answers almost the the reading of the writer, the, the reading of the uh, reader, as he answers his thought, you think he's weak, he shall not fail nor be discouraged, is immensely strong, but strong in God. But he will first bind the strong man in himself, in verses 2 and 3, and then he will be set as king over all the earth. And his effects will be seen in the isles, in the Gentiles afar off. And so on. It goes on to speak in this beautiful chapter. I, Yahweh, verse 6, have called thee in righteousness, will uphold thine hand, will give thee, will keep thee rather and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open their blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I, Yahweh, that is my name and my glory will I not give to another. So he's going to do that through this one whom he chose. And here they come. There's a very wonderful sense of this passage coming into Mark chapter 3. And at uh, the end of this section in Matthew's record, it quotes from Isaiah chapter 42. So it's not just uh, coincidental. It is of the spirit that that passage should be seen to be in effect at this time. Did you notice carefully in that verse 8 from whence some of those people came, my dear brethren and sisters? When Jerusalem in the schools of learning that knew most about the Bible. Tragedy, isn't it? Among those very orthodox and strict Jews that were brought up according to the strictest custom of our fathers, as Paul would express it, who day and night, as he also says, sought to do meticulously the will of God, when they were cobbled up with all kinds of arguments which restrained them from seeing the overall truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when they were bound up in all their legal cobwebs, we read in verse 8 that from Idumea and from beyond Jordan and from Jezebel's backyard, a great multitude came to them. Isn't that glorious, my dear brothers and sisters? The hand of God in that? Isn't that glorious? Can you imagine what a magnificent inspiration that would have given the Lord as he saw those people? What kind of people were they? What kind of people were the Idumeans? You know, there were some of those foolish Herodians who were also Idumeans who were joining with the Pharisees in verse 6, but not all of them. The common run of the Idumeans had dissociated from Herod, who though he was king over over Israel at that time, they dissociated from their own person. And they were following the Lord Jesus Christ. Idumeans were there. Oh, I'd love to see them. Perhaps some of of Doeg's ancient uh, heritage. No longer going against the king of Israel, but completely united with him. No longer slaying the priest, so to speak, but joining with the priest of a new age—glorious things to consider. Tyre and Sidon. It shall be said, the Lord, more blessed for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And there's a good reason, you see. He hadn't been to Tyre and Sidon, but they were coming to him. He'd stood in the seats of the streets of Capernaum. He'd healed all those people that came out, for example, on that one night to the door of Simon's house. They had seen countless miracles, but when he spoke, they hardened their hearts. But those of Tyre and Sidon were coming down the hundred miles or so, on foot. Imagine that. Not getting out the car and driving along in air-conditioned comfort, but making their way with all the uncertainties that it must have seemed to them. Who is this name? Why were they so sure to come? Why were they prepared to gather all their things together, leave their employment, take their children, and come all that way? It's because the message of the Lord Jesus Christ had absolutely saturated that whole Palestinian coast and it had to be that way because a great light had arisen. There's Isaiah 9 there too, isn't there? A great light had arisen in Galilee of the Gentiles and it must have been the most wonderfully cheering event as the Lord saw all these people, slightly different colour, different backgrounds entirely to what he had and to what the 12 had and here they were coming in their numbers and they were sitting and they were learning and they wanted to hear what a magnificent assembly that must have been it truly was a prototype of the kingdom that was to come and he was there as in Revelation chapter 7 now he was busy sealing them in their foreheads he was affecting their intellect, a great multitude it says and when they had when they had heard what great things he did, they came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Can you see the absolute contrast? There are terms expressing great delight in him. They're thronging him, verse 9. They are pressing upon him, verse 10. That they might just touch him, verse 10. When there's another crowd in Jerusalem that are gathering in their declining minority, that are gathering with their small arguments, verse 22, that they might destroy him. Or because of his act of mercy in chapter 3, verse 6, because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. And yet really what could they say about chapter 3 verse 6? Because on that occasion he had not done any work even he but spoke to the man. He stood there and he told the man to come into the centre. He stood there and he told the man to stretch forth his arm. Had he worked? Well in terms of physical work he hadn't. So what case could they possibly have against him at this time? Well they were outside of all this joy because of their foolish legal and legal arguments that refused to see who was the son of God The expression that they might throng upon him is a very strong one it means that they might literally fall upon him it's in contrast to chapter 3 and verse 32 where it says the multitude sat about him in a nice orderly situation when the Gentiles came in verse 9, they just had a great need and they wanted to get there. They were like that woman that had the issue for 12 years. They just had to get to him. For he had healed many, verse 10. insomuch that they pressed him upon him, but to touch him. And when you look at chapter 5 and verse 28, it may have been some of that message that got to that woman. And she realized that if she could but touch the hem of his garment. Matthew five and verse twenty-eight. This occasion where they but touched him, as many that had plagues. She had a plague, didn't she? It might have been the knowledge of this time, when even Gentiles had come and but touched him. And their plague, whatsoever whether it was a, a, a plague of disease or a plague of issue, whatsoever it was is not stated, but their plagues were were eradicated it may have been this that she heard and then it says and this must be perhaps the final footnote upon his miracles and unclean spirits when they saw him fell down before him and cried saying thou art the son of God you know an unclean spirit had been earlier found where in the synagogue in chapter 1 But now we have the answer of that, unclean spirits of the Gentiles, where we might truly, in our Jewish frame of mind, have expected them to be. Now they are being cleansed from their uncleanness. And they are responding. And that Jesus should, in fact, go to, uh, imagine it, a demoniac from Tyre and Sidon, Or a demoniac who had a a heritage that was from, from Edom, from Esau. And that he should heal him. Why, that must be the absolute utter fringe of those who were outcasts in the world at that time. He has brought them in and they have come to him. And they have said, we know who thou art. Thou art the Son of God. So unclean spirits had said that in the beginning let us alone what have we to do with thee Jesus of Nazareth I know who thou art the Holy One of God chapter 1 and verse 24 but now we have even Gentile demoniacs that must have been on the bottom rung of society and in the eyes of the Jewish people the most unclean of the unclean now they are declaring on behalf of this huge gathered multitude thou art the Son of God and when it came from them it came from all, a declaration of glorious acceptance. And Jesus, it says in verse 12, and he must have been deeply overcome by that circumstance, straightly charged them that they should not make him known. And just so that the exactitude of things is appreciated, because that quote from Isaiah is, is so important to this context, that you could almost put it over that situation. May we just turn to Matthew 13? Sorry, Matthew 12. And fit this in. There's the great multitude in verse 15. There's the charging to silence in verse 16. And the reason he charged them to silence is given as being the words of Isaiah. Verses 17 to 20. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. He didn't galvanize them into legions. He didn't give to each a sword. He didn't exalt his voice as the inspirational voice of a leader of men of war. He shall not strive nor cry neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send send forth judgment unto victory. And really that's so precisely like Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes and unto him is given dominion over that great power, that with great voice, in contrast to verse 19, had lifted itself up, not only above men, but even above God. He would not do that. But in the end, dominion would be given to him, and he would send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name, shall the Gentiles trust. So, the spirit saw the exactitude of Isaiah chapter 42, fitting into this beautiful con- con- context of Mark chapter 3 now with such a concourse of people coming to him he was obviously entering a new stage of his work they, that uh, collection of people in verses 17, 7 and 8 the description given there is greater than any that has been before a new stage has arisen Amongst that great multitude of people, there must be leaders. There must be foundations on which to build the ecclesia. There is a most important point included by Luke in his sixth chapter. For such historic decisions, prayer is required. It's interesting there to notice that in Luke chapter 6, And verse 12, it says, It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. So we must therefore insert, to get the complete record, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, between our verses 12 and 13 and Mark 3. You know, what does a man do who prays all night to God? You know, Jesus said, when you come before God, let not your words be with vain repetitions. And sometimes it's said from that, that any prayer that is lengthy is wrong. That's not really true. It's true that Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, let your words be few when you come before God. But that really, if you read the context, is in the sense of making a vow. Be careful what you promise God you're going to do, because we are but flesh. But there is nothing wrong in a prayer that is lengthy. I'm not suggesting that in ecclesial life all our prayers need to be lengthy. That's not my point at all. But I do believe that the person who is seeking God as the Lord seeks him will have a lot to communicate about. You know, Solomon's prayer was a lengthy prayer, and we probably only have a, a summary of that when he was at the dedication of the temple. There's a balance in that subject, and sometimes it's very easy to say all prayers should be short. Sure. I don't think that's true at all, and Scripture doesn't evidence that. And here is a case of where the Lord was in prayer all night. True, his understanding of his father was like a father talking with his son, a son talking with his father. It was a different relationship, but nevertheless, those comments may serve to balance sometimes. If there's things that need to be said, and if, you know, in our struggle to approach the glory of God and to to be able to enter into his presence, if that requires some measure of words, some time to feel that we can really move into his presence, then I don't think presiding brethren should be apprehensive to take what time is needed that we can really, in our mind, be able to grasp hold. You know, a short, brief prayer can sometimes seem almost mechanical and flippant, and I don't think that's what God wants. If there is a lifting up of our our passion, of our emotion, of our mind toward God, if that takes a little bit of concentration of the mind, and perhaps there's some several expressions that we might finally get there, then I think that's right, and those prayers have always had a very great effect upon me i love to hear a brother pray with all his spirit and and heart and mind toward God. It is not a perfunctory exercise. It's the lifting up of the whole being unto him and the carrying of us too with him into the Father's presence. All right. He was there all night in prayer and he was probably going through the names of those various ones that he had looked at as they had been with him been sorting that process out very carefully as he saw their devotion as he observed their qualities and he had to find mm. disciples upon whom the kingdom the kingdom could be rested you know the issues are spoken of in in the Matthew, in Matthew sorry it's going the wrong way for a moment in Matthew chapter 19 this is what he had in mind Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. That's the picture he's got in mind. All those people, and he's seeing now the kingdom isn't he? His mind is going ahead, beyond. He could see a picture of the kingdom and peoples all nations and tribes coming into that kingdom when the son of man shall sit in the throne of his kingdom ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of the first dominion which will be Israel at that time so he called unto him whom he would I love that picture again I suggest to you to get brother Sargent's book and see the little description he has there it's a lovely picture He sees the king upon the mountain, high and lifted up, see? And he's saying down to the mountain, Come up, James! Come up, John! Come up, Peter! Come up, Andrew! He calleth unto him whom he would. There is the exercise there of a king that is calling his ministers with all the power that he has for personal nomination. Not, of course, that it's been his own counsel alone. He has communicated with his father and then on the basis of that certain... Joint council, he has called unto him just those men. And who were they? Men vest clothes? Men of great intellectual background? Men with letters after their names? They were fishermen, mostly. Isn't that an astounding story? Galileans, or an outcast like Matthew. Amazing choice that the Lord made at that time that was his assessment and he was undoubtedly right so he goeth up into a mountain calleth unto him whom he would and they came unto him there is the power of the king he's able to call and they come you know the Greek is a little bit stronger to indicate the the authority of the Lord there where it says he called unto him whom he would it says in Nessel's translation, those whom he wished. Those whom he wished. It truly was like a prime minister has full control about whom he will put into his cabinet, doesn't he? It was with even greater authority than that. Whom he wish, wished. And then he called him down on the plain were many thousands of people of all different kinds. He could have called Gentiles, but he called 12 Jewish people to be princes on the thrones over the tribes in the future. So we read there how he ordained twelve that they should be with him that he might send them forth uh, to preach. You know the fact that there was twelve rem- reminds us of that Matthew nineteen thirty eight, which is a very important quote but you know Luke mentions the same thing in Luke chapter 22 just gathering the evidence on that point three good cross-references. Matthew 19, verse 38 was our first, and here's another one. Luke 22, and verse 30. Verse 29, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now I used to imagine, my dear brethren and sisters, that those twelve thrones would be you know in the, the strata which your Brother um, Sully has described in his book and we have there those horizontal strata of the twelve tribes of Israel. And I used to imagine that there would be a throne in each one of those tribes because I suppose one imagines that the throne would be in the locality of that tribe. But you know that's not right. And even the inference did you notice of Luke is saying that's not right isn't it? Where are the twelve at that time? they are sitting at his table, that's right so that's a very interesting little uh, implication is the implication right? well it's right because of common sense if they're going to be with him, they've got to be in Jerusalem, they've got to be with the king by his throne, sitting with him at his table that's an interesting implication, where is the basis of that implication? there's only one passage that's anywhere remotely like it Psalm 122, and that's exactly what it says. I found that really exciting. Just a little bit of reflection upon Scripture, and it all comes together so beautifully. Psalm 122, and verse 3. We sang this, you know, several times when we were around about Jerusalem. We were often walking to Jerusalem because where we were staying on our holiday was just outside of Jerusalem. So often we used to walk into Jerusalem I was glad when they said, Let us go unto the house of Yahweh. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Verse 4, Whither the tribes go up, the (coughs) tribes of Yahweh unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of Yahweh, for there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David, So when the Lord made that comment, I'm sure, although he hasn't said so, that it was on the basis of Psalm 122. There are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Thrones of the house of David because David stood for kingship and judgment. And so when in the future we become kings and priests in the mercy of our heavenly Father, we become part of the house of David. So the thrones on which the twelve are established are truly the thrones of the house of David. So you can see the the Lord's mind working that out, can't you? He's thought about that passage, and so in Luke that's an important reference. Three important references together, Matthew 19.38, Luke 22, and Psalm 122. But just one final little point, whilst we have the appointment of the twelve, it says he ordained twelve, And whilst we've read of all of those things in the future, and the tremendous issues that lay ahead of those simple brethren. Look what it then says. Why did he choose them? That they should be with him. Isn't that lovely? That they should be with him. It wasn't just an automat, nor a royal autocrat, but a master that loved his friends and sought for his friends. You know time and time again he tried to find in them comfort and understanding. A leader always feels like that. A leader in ecclesial life looks for someone of understanding. He's bearing a lot of pressures. Our brethren of former years have felt like that. You read the life of Robert Roberts. Oh how he wanted someone to come who would have an equal mind that would be able to speak with him and give him counsel. But counsel with understanding and sympathy that could understand the burdens that he was bearing, who could understand the many hours at night that he was watching, bearing all the concern of the ecclesias. How much the apostle Paul wanted that as he had that band of disciples around him. Great men need comfort. They need companionship. But they need an understanding companionship, don't they? Not something that's seeking to fettle, fetter their feet, but something that's seeking in, in the godliness of good counsel to be able to be constructively helpful. And the Lord was no different in that. Do you remember in the times of his greatest pressure, he took them with him into Gethsemane. He took three of them, Peter, James and John, that they might be with him, that he might have some companionship and an hour of tremendous pressure, but they couldn't sustain him, could they? He came and he found them asleep. You know, we all need each other. We really need each other if you have ecclesial leaders be thankful to God that they are there they're not perfect and it's very easy to find the faults and to magnify them it's the same thing back at home it's the same thing the world around and it becomes very clear that the further a brother becomes in front of his brethren or for the more years he's in there the more subject he is to criticism and to the disruption of his work there is a right balance he must keep himself in true perspective. Indeed, we all must. But it's our role too, my dear brethren dear and sisters, not to be willing to hear criticism against our brethren, against an elder receive not accusation, except before two or three witnesses. There's a balance in that, isn't there? A proper balance. And so it was with the Lord. He wanted those to be with him, that they might sympathise with him. And he chose people that were as close to that as he could find. Men whose minds had endeavoured to really sort out what he really meant. That had endeavoured to to accept the degree of service that was involved in that. That it might mean a little bit of hard work. That it might mean going without a few meals. That it might mean having to look after the lands. That it might mean having to do a few things that were not what one would want to do. (coughs) That would be with him and understand him. So he loved the twelve. And he loved them unto the end. And so their names are given, and I won't be going through those names. They're given to us in verses 15 down to 18. They were not only to be with him, but he was going to send them forth to preach and have power to heal sicknesses. They would be with him for strength, they would be sent forth for their mission. And so Judas Iscariot completes the list in verse 19. And that's the first comment of the the death that was going to cloud his life. Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. I wonder what the discussion was between the Lord and and heaven about the choosing of Judas Iscariot, a son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Psalms 41 and Psalm 55. You know, Judas Iscariot was a man of counsel, I believe. A man of great mind. We went into the house of God together. Ahithophel is the prototype of of Judas. And Ahithophel was a counsellor of David's. A man of mind. Intelligence and reason. We went into the house of God together. mine acquaintance. They are the terms that you will find in those two psalms. Psalm 41 and 55. Judas Iscariot, nevertheless, was chosen, who also would betray him. So, from the beginning, as he said in John chapter 6, I think it's verse 65, he knew him from the beginning, whom he had chosen. And so they went into house, as the literal Greek word is. And so we can imagine all the people gathering around the house again. I would suggest that verse 19 means that the Lord really wanted some relief. He wanted a quiet time but it was not to be the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread and when his friends heard of it they went out to lay hold on him they'd had enough they said the man's man who were they? well really just a little bit of thought and an exploit of the original Greek leads us into no question as to who they were a little bit of thought first Who are the ones that care for you above all others? Your family? It's your family, isn't it? I used to have a mother just like that. I don't have any difficulty whatsoever in understanding verse 21. Always telling me. I was overdoing it. Burning the candle both ends. Think of yourself. You know all those things that dear mothers tell you. Well, that's unquestionably. Who's involved in verse 21? Who else would have the authority? Not even cousins. Not even uncles or relatives would have the, uh, the audacity to come up to a group of people that are listening to the Lord and think that all said and done, their right to say what he's doing is more than the gathered company. But a mother will think like that. My word, a mother will think like that. She's not put off by the fact that other people are around her. All said and done, it is her son. And so I'm sure that verse 21 is clearly his mother and his brethren. It's just the only type of person who could fulfill the role of verse 21. And when you look at the word, you find that it means kinsman. Kinsman, and the margin actually tells us that. And when you look down to verse 31, it's put beyond any question that it was his mother and his brethren. You know, that's a very sad reflection upon the family. They were clearly divided right down the middle. There was him and the rest of them. There must have been intense debate in that family, mustn't there? There was James, a glorious person, became eventually head of the Ecclesia. There was the other brothers, Josie's, Joseph as his name means, and Simon. And there was his sisters. And they'd sat down together and they were so worried about this matter that eventually they were going to do something about it. He's gone mad, they said, as that word means. You see, the family name was in, in great prominence. And so they thought, we've got to do something about that. And so they gathered together and said, <coughs> he's got to come away. Look, he's had no rest He's clearly not acting in insanity of mind. He hasn't even had a meal. Can't people leave him alone that we might take him back? Can't you hear a mother saying that? And bringing back to his senses. You know, there's a passage above all other passages which answers that. It's in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69 and verse 8. No, verse 7. because for thy sake I have borne reproach shame hath covered my face I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children my very kith and kin don't understand me that must have been hard for the Lord to bear look there were Idumeans coming There were people coming from Jezebel's territory down here to hear him and his own blood brothers and sisters couldn't understand him. And his mother, of whom it said that a sword shall pass through thine own soul also. Now when that was said to her by Simeon, that was not saying about the grief that would pass through her heart, It was talking about the sword of the Spirit that would divide between her thoughts as to whether he was true or whether he wasn't true. It was the sword dividing between flesh and spirit because that's what it's talking about. He shall be set before them. He shall uh, cause the the falling and rising of many in Israel. Also a sword shall pierce through thine own soul. See that? So Mary was going to be up and down with this issue, trying to work it out, keeping all things in her heart, but desperately trying to work it out. And this is a very clear illustration of that. And the psalm bears that inference as well. What was the the driving force that took him from his family? It was his father's business, as he would later term it. The zeal of thine house, where he was found when he said those very words, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He was eaten up rather than eating. Do you see the sense? He was consumed with the work of God. It just drove him on so that he found strength in that. You might say, well, that would weary a man. Well, in John chapter 4, he says, in a very uh, telling expression, in verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. They prayed him saying, Master, eat. You know, what would we do if we had that example among us? A man that was just just supercharged of the work of God. Wouldn't that lift our ecclesia? Wouldn't it lift our own inspiration? When we see a, a courageous example that against tiredness, against criticism, against difficulties, against family... Against all kinds of difficulties. When we see that that, situa- that person just going ahead in the work of God. Doesn't that mean a tremendous lot to us? When you hear the work of a brother. On in years. Overcoming difficulties and working hard as he ever worked. doesn't you? Don't you find inspiration from that? That's how they felt in the company of the Lord. Master though, eat as they saw him neglecting himself yet again. He said unto them, I'm okay. I have meat to eat that ye know not of. I'm eating he said I'm eating therefore said the disciples one to another verse 33 hath any man brought him ought to eat they felt that perhaps he had got a little snack on the side that they were unaware of Jesus said unto them in plain language my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work I'm consumed with that I'm all right, thanks don't worry for me, I'm all right. I'm consumed. I'm living on God's work. Have you ever read that section in Brother Thomas's life and work it's in uh, It's in the, the faith in the Last days, where John Carter brings together a brief forty page odd sum- summary of john thomas's work life Read that section in there where he had to go to England. He had a series of lectures to do, and he was ill before he started. And he hardly thought he could ever give a one-talk. And he had to, ended up having to give, oh, I think it was every night. And there was just people, every since he walked off the platform, there was people, 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 to all hours of night. In the morning, they were there again. You know, some of the times of Dr. Thomas are unprecedented in, the, in the, the history of the Brotherhood. You know, we've been reading here how crowds flocked. There was never a time in our Brotherhood's history ever like the early days of John Thomas. They had, a, they had a hall in Glasgow, and it took six thousand people. And there was many; there was a thousand people standing outside. Remember that? Imagine that! There's never been a time like it in our history. Clearly, it was a work of God. I have the greatest confidence in that. Robert Roberts would have town hall lectures, and they'd be standing in their hundreds outside. We've never experienced things like that, have we? In the midst of that, you see, Doctor Thomas was sick; He was very ill and he says how the work itself became a galvanizing force and power to him it's a lovely section to read it's something of the spirit of his master which is here expressed the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up he was a willing offering well what can the Pharisees say perhaps it was that they heard the comment of the relatives in verse 21 because at this point they now become vocal. You know, we want to be very careful where our words to go, particularly when they are reflective upon someone whose work is important ecclesially. <coughs> the unwise words of his very kith and kin, verse 21, may have been the inspiration for the scribes now to get stuck into their cause. And they had thought up a nasty little argument. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said he hath Beelzebub and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils now that must be one of the most wicked statements ever made Jesus calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which a man will not be forgiven verse 29 what were they saying well they were saying here are these demons that are occupying people they had accepted the Greek doctrine apparently that sickness was literally a matter of demons these demons are possessing these people as a person would possess a house and this man has come not because he's from God but because he's from Beelzebub the prince of the demons and Beelzebub has given him a charge that he can cast out these demons oh what a wickedness was involved in that well it's a pretty desperate argument isn't it it must have been the very dregs of the barrel Apparently, it wasn't said to Jesus deliberately. It was said to his disciples. And so, verse 23, he called them unto him. He's not going to have that little festering business going over there in the, in the corner of the house. He calls them unto him. And he said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Oh, I love the simple logic. I always love an argument that's that's simple. Because it's so much more powerful because of its simplicity. That is just a beautiful argument, isn't it? How can Satan, Beelzebub, cast out Beelzebub? Beelzebub's work is to infiltrate beings, he says. I'm taking up your argument. You say his, his work is to infiltrate other people. Now you say he's coming along and undoing his own work. If a kingdom be divided against itself, verse 24 that kingdom cannot stand. It's civil war. And no country that is at loggerheads amongst itself can stand. It's prey to all. So he said, your argument's undone. But you know, Beelzebub almost certainly means the Lord of the house. In the Greek it's not Beelzebub, but Beelzebul, B-U-L. That's an important uh, difference to make. And being Zebal. It means the Lord of the house. Now make a little comment there because you'll see how now the Lord plays upon that. He says in the next verse, and if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. Which would mean to say that Beelzebub's work is being destroyed by what I'm doing. He said, our work is not being destroyed. It's clearly growing and growing and expanding. So our work is not being is not self-destructive, but in fact it is growing and prospering at an enormous rate. And he could have pointed to all those people in the house or the fields that have been filled with people on the day before. To show that if this is Beelzebub's work, it's certainly not. Divided. It's growing. Verse 27 gets to the crux of things. He says, look, if you say that what I'm doing is by the Lord of the house, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, as I'm obviously must be spoiling Zibel, uh, Beelzebul's goods, except he will first bind the strong man, Satan the Lord of the house, and then he will spoil his house. It was a beautiful play upon things, wasn't it? He says, look, if I'm undoing Beelzebub's work, if you really think that these people are the work of Beelzebub, then I am, am undoing his work, and I could not therefore do that in the house of Beelzebub unless I have him bound. Isn't that a glorious argument? you see the power of that? In other words, the power of Satan, the power of the adversary, the power of evil is bound in me. It was a magnificent statement. But it also had strong implications to them. If he could bind the strong man, then he clearly could bind them too, given time. They were in a most invidious position. This man had indeed power over Satan. Over all the power of the enemy. This was the son of man. Under whom all things had been given. He is stronger than the strong man. He is greater than the prince of this world. He is a king who reigns indeed. And he had called his servants from that mountain up to him. There was plenty for them there to go away and think about. Verily, he says, verse 28, absolutely disgusted with the depth of their wicked argument. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And blasphemies, which is speaking against. That's what blasphemy means. Blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme that he that shall speak against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation you know in the context if you go back into Matthew and Luke you'll find that he had cured a man there a young man who was both deaf and dumb have you ever seen a man who's deaf and dumb ever had anything to do with a dumb man or a deaf man it's a very, very real plight isn't it have you ever had to try and communicate with him a deaf person misses most in life. And you find, we've got a number of deaf in our meeting, you find that although they might be middle years, their education is way, way back. The things that you and I, our children, just take for granted, you find, in fact, they don't understand. Because they've missed out so much on in life because of their lack of ears to hear. What is the plight of a person who not only can't exercise <coughs> their ears, but can't exercise their mouth? They can't speak. They're almost caged, aren't they? It was a terrible plight of a person in that position. Deaf and dumb. Terrible plight. And the Lord had brought that person from almost a state of being of nothing, isn't it? Not hardly a human being. He had brought that person into fullness of life. And they couldn't take joy out of that what a terrible circumstance that was they couldn't be touched by the new life that had come to him and they came to him with this a- argument you know what he was saying to them was not just words he had cured that man they would seen it he says look he said I tell you there's almost no hope for you if you can see that and you can away and ascribe that to the force of, the, of evil to the force of the devil of Satan of evil If you can ascribe God's Holy Spirit powers to the work of the devil, then where are you? There's one thing for sure. They were well and truly in Beelzebul's house, weren't they? Chained by him. He was, by implication, offering them, as a strong man, a means of deliverance. So finally, verses 31 to 35. When he has given this discourse, there came then breaking through the crowd, a dear woman with with wrinkles of worry, with all the strains of maternal care written across her face. There came then his brethren and his mother, but they couldn't get to him because of the press, because people were sitting too, all around him, compact, the study class was filled, Bible classes that are not compact, my dear brothers and sisters, are a great tragedy. Make sure your chair is always filled when it comes to Bible class night. Come as often as you can with your family. Make that a vibrant living class because, because we need it today. Then came then his brethren and his mother and they couldn't get there because of the compactness of the crowd. So standing without, notice the term, standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And so the message comes to the Lord. But the multitude sat about him. Notice that comparison. Standing without, sat about him. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that sad? That other people, even Gentiles, are in the front rows and his dear mother and brethren are outside standing. And so the message comes through, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without, seek for thee. It was a call of duties. It was the mother again seeking him and saying, Wist thou not that we have been looking for you? And he would reply to them, Do not you realise that I would be about my father's business? And Mary must never have forgotten these words. He answered them, saying, Who is my mother and my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat, not standing outside, but sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. Oh, my dear, he must never have forgotten those words. She must never forgotten those words. Behold, my mother and my brethren. And over here is some Edomite, And there's a person from Tyre and Sidon. And here's some Galileans from Galilee among the Gentiles. Behold, my mother and my brethren. So whosoever shall do the will of God the same as my brother and my sister and mother. And there are beautiful echoes there to another time when he was in the house in Bethany. And there were two girls there. There was Mary and there was Martha. And you remember that occasion it says about Mary particularly that she sat at his feet, and that's where they were. If there's a study class on, my dear brethren and sisters, and the Word of God is being spoken, there's no more important place. Your business concerns, get home quickly from the Bible class and do them then. They're not more important than sitting at the feet of that master and learning, are they? There's nothing we need more than the word of life. When Martha was preparing that meal, she thought it was the most important thing to do. And that's how all housewives are. You know, before Sunday, when we should be preparing, if we're going to have friends home, what's happening in the kitchen? Clang, clang, rush, rush, pressure, pressure. It's not just our house, is it? It's every house. But really, quite seriously, there is something more important even than that. And that's to prepare our minds. And Jesus said, Martha, you think to prepare me a meal? I'm already providing a meal. Here's the meal, and Mary hath chosen it. She hath chosen that better thing. And he commended her for that, just in the same incisive manner, and somewhat perhaps... Instructive, if not a, a little hurtful for Martha. As it was hurtful for his mother at this time. He told that crowd as he told them what was the really important thing. It's the word of life. We've done the readings today or yesterday. We do them together at Bible school. So it's not difficult. But we need that word of life. And at lunchtime, we need to sit there and read that. Whether we're at work or whether we're home. If you go to work, take your Bible with you. And before we go to work, make sure we try to get a reading. The most important thing we can do for our mother and our children is that as fathers of the homes, we gather them around our table and discuss the word of life. We're in desperate need of that. So that when we go out in that awful world, that daily grows worse, we've got something in our minds to help us do, having heard, to help us do the things of God. Lunchtimes, we need it again. So do our children. When we come home, we need it to be refreshed again. We need the word of God always working in our family life. That's not past any of us implementing in our lives. And that's the lesson of that story. Mary had to tragically go away and learn that. That the necessary thing was to hear her master's voice, or as he expressed it to Mary and Martha in Bethany, some time before she hath chosen that one thing necessary, and it shall not be taken from her.